Friends, it is really, really, really good to be back here. Uh, my name is John Minan. Uh, I'm the RUF campus minister, the, the, the campus minister for Reformed uh, University Fellowship uh, at the University of Vermont. Uh, and before my wife Megan and I uh, moved uh, to Vermont, uh, we were members of this church. Um, this church is very, very special to Megan and me. We love Christ the King Newton. We love you guys very, very much. And we have, we're so glad and grateful to know your love for us as well. Uh, thank you. Um, I, it's hard for me to put into words how nice it is to be back here uh, to, to see your faces again, and and to worship with you once again. So truly uh, know how nice it is and and how grateful we are. Um, There's an RUF meeting uh, in Cambridge this Tuesday. Uh, That's what has brought Megan and I here. And when I learned about uh, this meeting on Tuesday, I picked up the phone and I called Bradley, and I mentioned that we were going to be here this weekend. And when I had him on the phone, uh, we discussed the possibility uh, of my preaching here uh, this Sunday. And... uh, well, here we are. Um, I, uh, I asked him at that time, you know, uh, what, what sermon series you would be going through this spring. And, and Bradley said, oh, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew. And I said, well, what text are you going to be preaching on? Or what text would, would I be preaching on this particular Sunday, you know, March 17th? And he said, oh, hold on one second. And he pulled up his calendar. He said, oh, it's going to be Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. So I wrote that down on a piece of paper. And I said, that's great. We talked a little bit longer, uh, hung up the phone, and as soon as I had got off the phone, I opened up my Bible and I flipped to this passage, and I don't know if I laughed or I groaned, <laughs> but I was like, of all the passages to preach, you know, I, I got stuck with the death of John the Baptist. I've never preached this before, and I've actually never heard this preached before, and, and I think there's kind of a reason for that. This is a, a dark passage. Uh, it's gruesome. Uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, much that's redemptive about it. And so I had mixed feelings for a couple of weeks. I was very, very excited to preach here, but admittedly not very excited to preach this text. Those feelings really started to change for me uh, as I began working uh, on this sermon. This passage is still dark and gruesome and, and difficult to be sure. I don't think there's any getting around that. But it has been really good for me uh, to sit with this passage for a while. And I think it's going to be good for us to do the same today. Um, Interestingly enough, I have really felt God's presence with me working on this sermon, maybe more than any other I've worked on in the past. And I'm not entirely sure why that's the case, but I hope that's one of the things that gets translated today. I really hope that you know his presence is here with us, and I really do hope that you hear his voice speaking his gospel truths to you and me as we look at this passage in some detail. This sermon has sort of three points or parts to it, uh, but rather than lay them all out uh, for you at the beginning, what I thought we would do is maybe work through them somewhat inductively. The first point uh, of this passage, or the first point of this sermon, is this. The death of John the Baptist is a vivid reminder that we live in a world filled with injustice. The death of John the Baptist is a vivid reminder that we live in a world filled with injustice. 
Before we dive any deeper into this passage, let's get our bearings for a moment. Who is John the Baptist? Okay, who's the protagonist in this passage? Matthew mentions him for the first time uh, in chapter 3 of this gospel. But if you really want to know who John the Baptist is, if you want to sort of know the secret to his identity, you're going to have to flip further back into your Bibles to the Old Testament. If you open up your Bibles to the last book uh, in the Old Testament, and you're free to do that if you like, uh, you're going to find yourself in the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi was a prophet who lived approximately 480 years before the birth of Jesus. Okay? And here is what was going on at the time of Malachi. The years 480 B.C., the people of Israel are back in Israel. They're no longer in exile in Babylon. They're back in their homeland. And what they've done is they've rebuilt uh, the city walls of Jerusalem, and they've rebuilt the temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. But all is not well for the people of Israel. They're poor, they're under foreign occupation, and they're suffering injustice. And worst of all, the glory cloud that used to fill the temple, okay, before it was destroyed, it hasn't come back. Okay, the glory cloud that filled the temple, that was a sign of God's presence with his people, it hasn't come back to the temple, even though the temple has been rebuilt. And the people see this, okay, or I should, they don't see this, right? And they're dismayed. And this is where Malachi comes into play. Uh, it's through this prophet that God speaks some, some words of comfort and promise. He says through Malachi, don't worry, I love you and I haven't forgotten about you. And I haven't forgotten about my promises to you. And he also says through this prophet, uh, don't worry, I'm going to come back to my temple someday. And I am going to dwell in your midst once again. But before I come back, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of me, and he's going to prepare my way. Before I come back to my temple, I'm going to send a messenger ahead of you, and he's going to prepare my way. And if you were to look at Malachi and read passages like 3, 1 and 4, 5, this is what you would read. God's saying, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He says in 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So God is promising to return to his temple. He's promising to dwell with his people again. But he's saying that he's going to send a messenger ahead of him who's going to prepare his way. Every single gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all equate... John the Baptist is as that messenger who was sent before the Lord, preparing the way, you know, in advance of the Lord's Lord's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them say John the Baptist is this promised messenger. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi. He's the fulfillment of of promises uh, in in Isaiah. Uh, He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's the voice preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. He is the prophet like Elijah who goes before the Lord preparing his way. And the way that John the Baptist did this is that he he went out into the wilderness and he preached a message of repentance and he was baptizing people in the River Jordan as a sign of the repentance before the Lord. Okay? So this is who John the Baptist is. This is the the protagonist, as it were, of our passage. He's the long-awaited messenger. He's the the one sent by God 
to herald his coming uh, and to prepare his way. So what happens to John, right? What happens to our, our protagonist? Well, John gets in some trouble with Herod, okay? After baptizing Jesus, John continues his ministry of word and sacrament, you know, preaching a message of repentance and continuing to baptize people in the river. But somewhere down the line, he gets himself in trouble with Herod. Now, Herod was the, uh, the tetrarch of Galilee. You, you could say he was the, the puppet king of the Jews. And Herod starts sleeping with his brother's wife, a woman named Herodias. And John the Baptist calls out Herod on this and says, Look, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this. Okay? And this upsets Herod. It's, it upsets him so much that he throws John into prison for this. Well, John is a, he's an innocent man. Okay? His only crime, uh, if you want to call it that, is for telling the truth. For telling Herod, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. Right? Matthew 14, 4. Okay? He's an innocent man. He, he's in prison for telling the truth, okay? He's in prison for no good reason. And as it turns out, he's going to die there in prison for no good reason. And here's how this shakes down. Okay? Herod throws a birthday party. And Herodias' daughter, okay, that is Herod's niece, performs an erotic dance for Herod and his friends. Herod, drunk with lust for his niece, goes on and makes a rash promise and says to the effect, baby, I'll give you anything that you want. The girl then, prompted by her mother, says, hmm, let me think about that. I know, I want John's head on a platter. Herod, not wanting to lose face in front of his friends, gives the word to the executioner. The executioner goes to John's prison cell, drags him out of his cell, chops his head off, puts it on a plate, and gives it to the girl and her mom. What happens to John is awful. It's evil. It's unjust. I've spent the past couple of weeks looking at this passage, trying to find some sort of silver lining here, and i got to tell you, friends, I don't really see one. There's really nothing good about this. It's just sad and broken and wrong and unjust. And I think it's important that we name it as such. I think it's important that in the face of injustice, we don't try and sugarcoat things. I think it's important that in the face of injustice, we call a spade a spade. This is awful. Okay, this is evil. What happens to John is unjust. Of course, this isn't the only injustice in the Bible. I mean, there are other examples as well. Uh, but this is a vivid one. And it's a, it's a vivid example that calls attention to the fact that we do live in a world that is filled with injustice. Okay? The, je- the death of John the Baptist is a vivid reminder that stuff like this happens all the time. Okay? I could spout out a few examples from the past week's news. I mean, just... On Monday, uh, it was reported that radical Islamists in northern Nigeria killed seven construction workers, people who were trying just to do their job, killed for no good reason. 
On Tuesday, more reports about James Seville and the kids he hurt. Kids who did nothing wrong. Wednesday, reports on the BBC, lengthy reports about Nepalese soldiers who took and kidnapped and murdered a 15-year-old girl, and all they got was a slap on the wrist. Okay? I can go on and on and on, but you get the point, right? The death of John the Baptist is a vivid reminder that we live in a world with injustice. How, I wonder, do you deal with this? What do you do in the face of injustice? I don't know what your reaction is personally, but I can tell you what a lot of people do. A lot of people respond to injustice with disbelief and with doubt. In the face of injustice, there are many people who say, there isn't a God or that God is dead. In the face of injustice, there are many other people who won't go so far as that. They'll say that God still exists, but they will deny that he's all good or that they'll deny that he's all powerful. And this brings me to point number two of this sermon. Okay? In the face of injustice, we are prone to doubt God's existence, his goodness, or his power. Okay? In the face of injustice, we are prone to doubt God's goodness, excuse me, God's existence, his goodness, and his power. The, the fact that we would say that God is dead or that there is no God uh, in the face of injustice, uh, perhaps the most eloquent expression of this I've ever read comes from a man named Eli Wiesel. Okay, a Holocaust survivor. Eli Wiesel and his family uh, were taken to Auschwitz when he was 15 years old. And in his book, Night, he describes his first night in that particular concentration camp. I want to just read you uh, a short passage from that. Here's what he says. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Okay. In the face of injustice, we are prone to say that there is no God or that God is dead. Okay, we see this view often espoused, don't we, in newspaper editorials after some sort of major tragedy or some major injustice, something like the Rwandan ge genocide or after the events of 9-11. Okay, after those events, we open up our newspapers and we, we read the editorial page. We'll read this question, where is God? And then we'll come to this conclusion, well, he's not there. Okay? In the face of injustice, we are prone to say that there is no God or that God is dead. If we don't do that, if we don't deny his existence we may be prone to say, 
God is not all-powerful or, or God is not all-good. We'll doubt his, his goodness or his power. And here's how this argument often goes. People might say, God is all-good, but he's not all-powerful. God's all-good, but he's not all-powerful. In other words, God wants to stop injustice. He just can't. He wants to, but he can't. He's all-good, but he's not all-powerful. Or people will say, well, God's all-powerful, but he's not all-good. In other words, God can stop injustice, but he won't. Either way, people say, you can't have it both ways. He's either all-good or he's all-powerful. But the fact that there's injustice means he's not both. Okay? In the face of injustice, we are prone to say, or we're prone to doubt God's existence his goodness, or his power. Okay, as it turns out, John the Baptist himself had, had moments of doubt. In prison, before his beheading, John had some messengers sent to Jesus. And the message that they relayed from John was a question, or that they relayed to Jesus uh, was a question from John. And the question was this. John wants to know, are you the one who's to come, or should we be looking for another? John's asking Jesus, are you the one who's to come, or should we be looking for another? You need to remember who who it is who's asking this question. This is John the Baptist, right? The the prophesied, the, the one that people were prophesying about, saying, this is the one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the guy who, when he saw Jesus, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who said, behold, the one whose straps, I'm not worthy to untie. He's calling out Jesus and saying, this is the Messiah. But between prison and the platter, John is having a crisis of faith. He's doubting. Between prison and the platter, John is wondering, is Jesus who he really says he is? Is Jesus who I thought he was? In the face of injustice, or when we ourselves are experiencing justice, the victims of it, we are prone to doubt and disbelief. Well, this brings me now to our third and final point. So far, we have seen that the death of John the Baptist is a vivid reminder that we live in a world filled with injustice. And we have seen that in the face of injustice, we are prone to doubt or deny God's existence, his goodness, or his power. But now I want to call attention to my third and final point, and it's this. God hates injustice, but he loves us so much so that he is willing to suffer injustice so that our story can end in laughter, not tears. I'm going to say that again. God hates injustice, but he loves us so much so that he is willing to suffer injustice so that our story can end in laughter, not tears. I want to unpack that just a little bit. God hates injustice. It's very important for us to recognize this. We have said that this world is filled with it, that it's filled with injustice, but the Bible plainly teaches that this hasn't come from God. In the beginning, God created a good and beautiful world, 
a world that was filled with love and peace and joy and harmony and goodness and beauty and truth. A world filled with these things. A world without sin and injustice. But if that is the case, where did it come from? Okay, here too the Bible teaches very plainly. It says that injustice comes from us. It comes from people who are made in the image of God, who are created to love, but who instead rejected God and his good purpose for us and his creation. Instead of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and instead of loving our neighbors as ourselves, we have turned our backs on God. We live selfish, self-absorbed lives. We use and oppress and manipulate people. And God hates this. God hates our sin. He hates what our sin has done to us, people whom he loves. He hates what our sin has done to people who are made in his image. He hates what our sin does to other people. And it's important to know this. It's important to state that God hates injustice. But it's also important to know that God does not hate injustice from a distance. You know, God is not like an aloof parent who's sort of standing off on the sidelines with his arms crossed, you know, shaking his head. You know? That's not who God is. He doesn't hate injustice from a distance. He is completely moved by suffering. And I mean that literally. God leaves heaven for this world. He becomes a human being. He steps into our suffering. He steps into our madness And he takes it on. And this gets to the very heart of the mission and ministry of Jesus, does it not? At the heart of the mission of Jesus, we see a God who is willing to suffer injustice so that our story can end in laughter and not tears. The Bible teaches that God entered into this world on a rescue mission to save sinners. And that rescue mission really has three components to it. It's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is living a perfect life on our behalf so that we can have a perfect record before God. He's dying for our sins. All the sins that we deserve, he's taking in our place. And then Jesus is rising from the grave, victorious over sin and Satan and death, all those things that separated us from a God who loves us. Okay, All three of these things are critical for this rescue mission, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. But in the middle of those things, what do you see? When you look at the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, what you see is a God who is suffering on a cross. At the very heart of this rescue mission, okay, at its center, at its core, you see a suffering Savior. You see a God who is dying for crimes that he himself did not commit. A God who is willing to take our punishment in our place. Why did God do this? Why was God willing to suffer this? It is because he wants our story to end in laughter and not tears. I love the way that this story is told, reflected uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have this young boy named Edmund, and Edmund's guilty of a crime. He's committed high treason against Aslan, 
He's committed high treason against Narnia itself. Okay? And the white witch comes to Aslan, and he, she reminds him of this fact, the fact that he is guilty of a crime and that this crime is punishable by death. And here's what she tells Aslan. She says, You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to kill. And so continues the witch, That human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. And it looks like there's no escape for Edmund. This is the deep magic, right? It can't be overturned. Someone guilty of a crime must die. But then Aslan does something unexpected. Okay? He offers himself up as a willing sacrifice. He says, take me instead. I will die in his place. And sure enough, later that night, the white witch and her monstrous minions, you know, they take Aslan and they muzzle him and they kick him and they hit him and they spit on him and they jeer at him. And then they drag him onto the stone table and with the knife that she was going to use to kill Edmund, she plunges it into Aslan and kills him instead. The next day, something remarkable happens. The stone table breaks into two and Aslan, who was once dead, is alive once more. And this catches Susan and Lucy completely off guard. And they ask, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I want to read you for Aslan's response. I have it here. Just listen. Here's what Aslan says. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now? Oh, yes, now, said Lucy, jumping up and clapping her hands. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. Then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over it to reach him. Aslan leaped again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of the reach, now letting them almost catch his tail now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia, and whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired, or hungry, or thirsty. What does this mean for all of us today? In the face of injustice, okay, when we see guys like John the Baptist dying in prison, when we see genocide on television, when we experience injustice ourselves, there are a few things that we can say and know with confidence. When we see injustice or when we experience injustice, we can be confident about a few things. Okay, the first thing we can be confident 
is that God hates injustice. Okay, he has done something about it at the cross. He's going to come again to judge the living and the dead, and there's not going to be any more. We can say in the face of injustice that God does not like this. Secondly, we can say with confidence that God himself knows what it's like to be the victim of injustice. He knows what it's like to be mistreated and abused and treated um, and punished for crimes that he did not commit. Which is to say that there is no place that you can go where God hasn't already gone before you. Okay? He can sympathize with you in your weakness. He can sympathize with you in your injustice. There's nowhere he hasn't gone. You're not alone. He knows what you're going through, really. And that's powerful. You can say with confidence that God loves me. And you can also say with confidence that because of Jesus... Even sad, even sad stories can have happy endings. You know that God hates injustice, that he's experienced himself, he knows what you're going through, that God loves you, and that because of Jesus, even sad stories can have happy endings. We live in a world filled with injustice, and we might never know what the reason is between, behind this particular act of injustice, but we know what that reason is not. It can never be that God doesn't care. Okay? It can never be that God is indifferent to our suffering. He cares about justice and he cares about you with the whole of his being, which is why he's willing to suffer injustice so that your story can end in laughter and not tears. This is the gospel. I am so glad that it's true. Please pray with me.